0: And we have now listeners all over the country. I'm not really sure how that happened. That's nice to know. Thank you all for listening. I don't know why you would choose to do this with your free time. Maybe you're being forced to. So if you're in that category of you being tortured by being forced to listen to the personal wealth coach until you have begun to enjoy it, Welcome to the warped brains of the economists in the world. Thank you for listening. And this is uh, productivity and costs by industry. Wholesale trade and retail trade. Um, the retail trade sector had a 7.7% productivity growth over the last 12 months. Uh, non-store retailers, what is a non-store retailer? Can you give, give me a guess on that? A retailer that doesn't have a store. Right. Um, non-store retailers generally are online. They should be called warehouse retailers because they have warehouses. They had a 19.6% productivity increase. Over the last year. Um, whoa. That's huge. There, that is a number that you just simply don't see in, in economics almost ever. Um, 19.5% in sports, hobby, music instruments, and bookstores.
1: There's an important thing about productivity that I think people don't understand very well. I don't understand it very well, so I assume they don't either. And that is, there's two ways for the GDP to grow. Actually, three ways for the GDP to grow. If there's more people working, but first, there have to be people who want to buy. Right. Presuming you have a lot of people who want to buy, and we, do, we have that right now. Then more people working more hours allows for growth in product, product creation and delivery, which is what the GDP is all about. Then... Productivity rising doesn't require more people and more hours. As a matter of fact, it indicates that there are fewer hours being worked to produce the same stuff and services that were were done before, and that allows the GDP to grow too.
0: And that's kind of the the kryptonite for inflation is productivity growth.
1: And we're having some amazing productivity growth over the last year.
0: Now, some of that growth comes because people weren't doing anything, but the non-store retailers... People weren't losing their jobs in that category. So to have a near 20% improvement in productivity year over year means that we've automated drastically. Uh, there are some areas where productivity decreased in, in the uh, retail area. Gas stations had a 5% drop in productivity. Um, electronics and appliance stores, not online, had a 2% drop in productivity and building material and garden supply stores had a 0.7% drop in productivity. What is that about? Well, the answer to that is that we've just had a huge surge in demand across gas stations. The people are, people are going out and traveling at huge rates. And there have been layoffs in that area because, believe it or not, during the heights of the pandemic shutdown, there wasn't a lot of traveling going on. I know it's hard to remember back that far but that meant that a lot of people got laid off from gas stations and now as the demand has come back it's been harder to hire people for that and they've been required to work longer hours it's really hard to increase productivity when you're standing behind a counter and that's your productivity is that you're there to accept payments Um, and you actually need to hire more people to do the same amount of work because Things were so easy to do last year at this time. So just keep that out there. The other, I mean, the, the big one here, and this is, um, it's a small decrease, but building material and garden supply stores. This is directly related to supply chain issues. The productivity dropped here because it was hard to get lumber for a long time. Prices for lumber went way up and it wasn't just lumber, but building material and garden supply stores mixed all together uh, include the biggest, aspect of that was building supplies uh the supply chain just got all kinked up and it required a lot more people to get that unkinked so you had a productivity drop when you see that compared to motor vehicle and parts dealers who you know we're talking about same kind of kind of supply chain issues they're automating fast enough that they're getting they had a seven percent rise And their productivity. I know I'm geeking out over productivity, but you just said this. Supply and demand, I think most people understand. They say if there's a lot of people that want to buy something, the demand is up. And if there's not as much supply, that means the prices are going to go up. Okay, so if everybody wants to buy chocolate chip cookies and there's not enough chocolate chip cookies, the prices go up.
1: Actually, the price of Oreos is being documented very thoroughly, and it has gone up 15%.
0: Right. So, supply and demand. There's not enough to go around. People want more Oreos. There's crack in them, maybe. Uh, That's unverifiable. That did not come from a source we deemed to be reliable. It came from me. (laughs) 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 Um, <laughs> 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 uh, but so supply and demand are important but the other side of this underlying even supply and demand because you have to have people to have demand uh, and you have to produce stuff to have supply underneath that are two factors that you kind of have to get through four years of economics in in college before it becomes you become aware of just how enormously important it is. And that's a very simple statement of productivity and demographics. You need to have an educated, fairly young workforce in order to have growth in your, in your GDP. And it needs to be, hopefully, a growing population so that GDP growth is just built into the system. And then productivity means that they do need to be educated and they need to know what they're doing and they need to get better at doing it on a regular basis so that we continue to have growth. Those are the big pieces to GDP growth.
1: Unfortunately, we are hitting the wall on population growth. As a matter of fact, over the last year, our population growth has been zero.
0: Yes. And it's actually been slightly negative. Um, and yes. part of that is death from other things, but we've stopped immigration. Uh, we're having fewer babies than we have people existing, so if, if each couple doesn't have two kids, then you're not replacing the population, and we're having fractional kids per couple. I don't know how that's done yet. Uh, I don't know how it is that people are getting the 0.9 baby uh, issue, but I see it in the statistics all the time.
1: I think I know what it is. It's pets.
0: You think it's pets?
1: Yeah, I notice the signs on the highway that say if you see a pet or child in a car alone, uh-huh. you should get help. So that we, we're equating pets and children. Ah,
0: maybe a pet is like a fractional person.
1: Maybe a pet, maybe a dog is 0.3 children.
0: Well, uh, every 15 seconds, a woman in America gives birth. Someone, wow. someone stop that woman. No, don't
1: stop her. Tell her to speed (laughs) up.
0: Statistics are weird that way. But we have hit the wall on demographics, as have just about every industrialized nation on the planet. When you're doing well, when you're prosperous, you're not having as many babies, especially if you have the ability to not have babies. Uh, And that's kind of interesting, but it's something we're seeing across the globe.
1: However, also the... The cool. pandemic really slapped off. A, I mean, we, there is a dramatic decrease in in, uh, in productivity of women having babies.
0: Yeah, it's a different kind there, of labor department there, where the labor department is product productivity increase in labor is shortaged in the demographic. You see what I'm doing there with a double entendre. With the, but there's a key.
1: There's a key element here. We've hit this problem before in the history of the United States, where we've had low birth rates among people who were born here. And we've solved it and continued to grow by having increased immigration from Eastern Europe and from other places. It's always been resisted by the folks who are there. Benjamin Franklin resisted it because it was the Scots-Irish coming in and he didn't want any of them coming into the country. But we have a choice. We can either go the route of Japan and China, which are headed towards a brick wall when it comes to demographic growth. They're They'll go into shrinking populations here very shortly. Why do we Japan always use?
0: Why do we use an allegory for a brick wall? Why can't it be like a timber wall or log wall or
1: grass? Well, timber wall.
0: wall, timber walls and log walls are a lot softer than brick walls. You hit a, you run a car
1: into a brick wall, and you probably, or you run your head into a brick wall, and oh. the chances are you won't come out well.
0: So you run a de- demographics into a brick wall, and the labor goes down. I get it. All right. Makes sense. But,
1: but we have a choice to make in the history of our country. We can either go stagnant, like Japan has done and China is doing, or we can allow immigration and allow our culture to morph and continue to grow. Um, we have a choice, and it's one of those critical choices in the history of a, of a country. Uh, and it's crucial to understand that if we don't allow immigration, we don't pass immigration laws that allow more people to come in. I'm not saying illegal immigration, but I'm saying pass Im- immigration laws that allow more people to come into the country. We will eventually have a very, very old population mostly on Social Security and going broke. And that's... The, Europe is headed that way already uh, to the point where Italy is now paying people to come and become citizens. The uh, The... China is at a, probably at its peak population right now, and will coast downhill from here. Japan has already hit the peak and is going downhill, and there's a lot of elderly people. And we have a choice: we can either bring in young people from outside the country, or we can stagnate and die and become an and also ran. And I don't. I prefer that we continue to bring in people from outside the country, but there's. Xenophobia also sets in as, as countries become prosperous. They don't want to share their prosperity with other people. And it takes a... We, we've done in the past. We've passed some laws. we passed some laws towards the beginning of the 20th century allowing more Europeans to come into the country, specifically targeting Eastern Europeans because Henry Ford and others lay, uh, lobbied really, really hard to get more people to work on the assembly lines because there simply weren't enough people. During the 1920s, we had a fall off in birth rates in the United States. Basically, the late, late 1800s, early 20th century, we had a fall off in birth rates in the United States. We had a lot of people die from, I started to say COVID, from the 1918 flu. We had a terrible recession, and Henry Ford went to Congress and said, we need to have more immigrants come in. And he managed to get laws passed allowing more immigrants to come in. I think we need to look at that today or we're going to run into a brick wall like I said.
0: Yeah, and that means that if if we're concerned about what immigration would bring to the country, then we design a law around what we would like to see come into the country. What the, our immigration laws right now are broken in every direction. There's not a Republican or Democrat that would disagree with that. They're just broken. They're they act of enforcing them causes the world to look at us like we are uh, really horrible people and at the same time not enforcing them means that we don't have any control over anything that's happening. What really needs to happen is the immigration laws need to be rewritten so that there's a demand from business that hasn't been filled by U.S. labor. It's it's from the perspective of economics. It's very simple. From the perspective of politics, it's absolutely impossible, and, and that's where you are. Uh, we have uh, another question from John. Um, China recently made a deal with the Saudis to buy their oil for 20 years with currency other than dollars. Will this challenge the dollar as the global reserve currency? Okay, uh, let me kinda address that across the board. China and Saudi Arabia have a preliminary deal to buy oil for the next twenty years it 's not a treaty it 's not even a contract signed it is a basic agreement that says yes we 're going to continue to buy from you uh, they have been buying uh, directly from Saudi Arabia and Iran and some other places uh, for quite some time how they're buying it is a is a big question right now, and your question says currency other than dollars uh, when Saudi Aramco became more than just a governmental entity. That's the big oil production company in Saudi Arabia. In their prospectus, they talk about uh, a petrodollar, or a petrocurrency, or possibly using yuan-based bonds uh, for for purchase of of oil and refined products. what, what is this? Well, if this, this, is, this is a little bit complicated, but we were just talking about exchange rates, so let's just go in whole hog. The Yuan is not traded on the international markets very much. The Yuan is the currency of China. It's also known as the um, The Both names are appropriate, the, but the Yuan is mildly easier to say. Um, So the yuan exchange rates are a little weird. It's hard to bring yuans out of China and even it's hard to bring them into China. Uh, So they they have the market pretty well closed up. So when they're offering to buy in currencies other than the dollar, it's a currency that doesn't properly exist yet or ever maybe. Um, And the Saudis... Went through a pretty tough patch. They and the Russians got into a snit in the middle of the beginning of the pandemic, where they went into a full-on oil trade war, trying to put the frackers out of business at the same time as each other.
1: It's important to also notice the current situation in which this deal, this preliminary deal was announced. As a Reuters has a headline, China's Saudi oil imports, imports plunged 21%.
0: Now that's that's that is from June, but it's the and then if you look back at the exports in July, they're up one hundred and forty seven percent. So go ahead.
1: The point is that China buys oil from Saudi Arabia. China would prefer to do business other than in dollars fact is the russians made a really sincere effort to buy oil for something other than dollars and it never it never worked out because there just enough there isn't enough around and oil is priced in dollars and the saudis not being particularly stupid would prefer to have a currency that's stable and backed by a large economy backed by the full faith and credit of a large economy and if they may accept yuan on a limited basis, it would be a small amount of money, relatively speaking, in, in their big economy. And the reason that they would accept that money on a limited basis is because if they they can use it to buy things from China directly. But as far as it displacing the United States dollar as a currency, no, there's no really no there's no threat there whatsoever there right. because there just isn't another currency that has the stability and circulation and quantity and quality that the dollar has this is I part
0: mean, this is part of the chinese belt and road project where they build infrastructure and give loans for in- infrastructure elsewhere in the world and the the deal for saudi arabia was we'll give you a bunch of money and the money is denominated in payback terms in the yuan but it wound up being dollars being loaned. So it gets really weird in the middle of this. So the dollars flowed into the Saudi system. It's being paid back not with money. How's that for weird? They've been given a big loan in yuan's that actually wound up being dollars when they arrived to be paid back with petroleum products. So how about exchange rates there? Uh, we've got Base, commodities being used as a, as a currency in the middle of that exchange.
1: It's basically about as effective as using barter instead of money.
0: Right. So and it, 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 it works between well. between two nations. It works well if you have a large amount of it. And if the Saudis were buying a whole bunch of stuff from China at the same time, the theory is that they could skip the dollar completely. The problem is that the Saudis have a bunch of debt that's dollar denominated, and they've gotta pay on that debt. And so when they got the debt from China, they couldn't use the Yuans to pay the dollar debt. So you can see why the replacing of a global currency is a very long process. And there's simply not enough Yuans to do it at this point. So the threat may be there for some point in the future. This deal, is not even the beginning of the pebble slide that causes the avalanche. This is just a pebble that just fell. Um, and that's, the numbers here are very small as a percentage of the overall international currency demand for dollars.
1: There's a parallel to that. There's people who want to replace the dollar with the Bitcoin. Yeah, And that was its intent was to replace dollars. And the problem with that is with the Bitcoin price fluctuating all over the place, crashing and then soaring and then crashing and then soaring. There's way too much risk in using Bitcoin in the, in regular transactions. Instead of speculative item, it's actually as a collectible.
0: Yeah. It's there's a collectible
1: a number. And as long as there's a market for it, there's a market for it, but it has no intrinsic use right now. You can buy a few things with it. Uh, but it's, it's very risky when you go to buy something because you can get a bid price for something. And then when you actually go to buy it, it would be much higher because the Bitcoin went down. Yeah. So that, the transaction has to happen instantly.
0: And people talk about, well, this company or that company is adding the ability to pay in Bitcoins. As fast as companies are adding the abilities, other companies are removing it because they got burned somehow. So it's not, it is not the established next step from the dollar. We just, We don't know what that is yet or if it is anything. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and... Jeff. McClure. Clear as a bell. You sound better than you did the entirety of the rest of the program. Well, it took a break to fix me. Yeah. Well, you you broke yourself to fix yourself? Yep. That's it. Fantastic. We do a podcast that is broken up from our radio program quite regularly, and it's interesting to watch the downloads and the numbers there and um, watching the numbers go up uh, as more and more people click on to us and then watching where they are. And we have now listeners all over the country. I'm not really sure how that happened. That's nice to know. Thank you all for listening. I don't know why you would choose to do this with your free time. Maybe you're being forced to by someone. My older brother, when we were younger, when he was particularly annoyed with me, would sit down and read the book War and Peace to me, which... Only worked until I learned to enjoy it, and then he promptly stopped. In which, in which case, I then began to read War and Peace to him. <laughs> so, if you're in that category of you being tortured by being forced to listen to the personal wealth coach until you have begun to enjoy it, welcome to the warped brains of the economists in the world. Thank you for listening.
1: The point that. John mentioned in passing in his question in the first hour, and I think it's very important. And I quote from the Wall Street Journal: Investors worldwide have funneled more than nine hundred billion dollars in the U.S. domiciled mutual and exchange traded funds on a net basis during the first half of the year. That's ne- that is
0: nearly a trillion dollars.
1: The rest of the world sees the United States as the best place to invest money. We don't have there are not net inflows into investments in the rest of the world; are net outflows. You happen to be living in a great place. You happen to be living in a place where we've got a better handle on what's going on probably than anywhere else on Earth.
0: As messed up as we are, we're still less messed up than everybody else. Bad news sells clicks, so you're going
1: to see bad news. But we're Mm -hmm. having a phenomenal uh, consumer confidence index by the conference board is up to where uh, about where it was before the pandemic. It's in really, really good shape. There's not only great confidence, and Jake mentioned something that I think is very, very critical that doesn't get in the news very much. The Biden administration has assessed a lot of the Trump administration policies and decided to continue them. The industrial policy is something that the Republicans traditionally have not wanted and feared and run away from. Trump adhered to it. Trump embraced it. Biden is continuing to embrace it and increase it. Basically... We're competing, in this particular case, with Chinese industry. China and the United States are competing economically. We never really competed economically with Russia, and they never were worth competing with economically. It was a military competition. But, you know, industrial policy sometimes worked. During World War II, it worked really, really well. And we are in an economic war with China. That's just the reality of it. They refer to it as an economic war, and we should, too. And they are pumping a lot of money into certain areas that they consider strategic, and I think we should, too. I think it's a good move. I have never greatly favored industrial policy, and certainly during the Bush administrations, we avoided industrial policy like the plague. But I think it's a good place to be, and I think it's a good way to go. And, and the thing that I want to compliment the Biden administration on is there's many Trump-started stated, Trump started policies that the progressives don't like, and that's one of them, by the way, that the Biden administration has continued and reinforced. And I want to, I think it, it takes a certain amount of guts to, to go against your party's core and to do something that the last guy who, you, who was your enemy in the election was doing and reinforce it. And I'm kind of proud of that. And we're starting some negotiations with China. I don't know if we're going to go anywhere. They're not being very nice about it, but they're not being very nice about anything else. One other thing about China, I think it's really good that we have competition from China. We need competition yeah, to drive us forward, because otherwise we would coast, a, you know, a sit on our laurels, if you will. And I think that the fact that China is a threat to us economically in the long term will give us an incentive to do a lot more things than we would otherwise do, and we're headed in the right direction. And, uh, and- let's just hope we can keep it up.
0: If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting locally during the week at?
1: 254-947-1111.
0: Or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got radio programs going back lots of years, uh, newsletters. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Um, You can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.